Thank you, Zach, um, for getting this started and focusing in. And the area I'd like to think about this morning. I have another question, which I often do. And that question is, what do we do now? I don't know what comes to mind when you think of that question. What do we do now? I'm sure we would get a variety of answers if I gave us all opportunity to answer it right now. I don't know what's going through your head and maybe what you're trying to figure out about what to do. And that perspective changes whether you're looking at it as a parent, um, as a single, as a married person, an employee, an employer, an administrator, a teacher, a student, all kinds of perspectives on that question. What, what do we do now? But I'd like this morning to ask that question as a church. I've been tempted to worry about that some over the past few months. And others that I've talked to have worried about it as well, or expressed worry. And in regards to the church, it's questions like, what is going to happen to the church? And I hear a variety of responses about that. What's going to happen? Some people are worried that people will never come back. And as I think of just thinking back a few months, it's hard for me to believe that we didn't actually meet here for three months, over three months, that we didn't meet in this building. Will people come back? Or are they just going to be gone? Um, Others have worried about our rights being infringed on or the church being oppressed. And I know pastors are quitting. and Not only pastors, but leaders in many areas are quitting. Law enforcement, medical field, etc. I hear people are quitting. It's a tough time to be a leader. And... Some would say it's a tough time for the church. Some feel like the enemy is having a heyday with disrupting the fellowship of the church, the meeting and gathering together that we do. And members are dividing over a lot of things um, as we look at the broad church over things like mass and politics and end time prophecies and racism and it seems like you can kind of pick any any on the list and there's going to be some division and division in the church over those things and there's a sense at least I've had in talking with people that you're you're trying to figure out even how to navigate with people like how do I like there's some tension in the air. How do I, like, what is, where's this person's stance? Like, I'm not sure. Can I say where I'm at? Or am I going to offend someone? Or am I going to somehow step on somebody's toes? Or is somebody going to be angry with me? And then others maybe that like to instigate that. I don't know. It seems like it. What is going to happen to the church? And what should we be doing about it? And it would be easy to worry If you know me, you know that I'm a pretty experienced worrier, pretty good at it over the years, and especially about the church. I've been really good at it the last 18 years of pastoring to worry about it. But as an experienced worrier, I've discovered that worry doesn't really produce any good answers. 
generally. It only produces stress and anxiety and fatigue and sometimes even panic. And often it, it produces frustration and anger with other people. That's been my experience with worry. It doesn't really produce many good answers. When I first started pastoring, I thought I had some answers. And I found that, you know, the answers to these questions aren't really new. I thought coming in that I had some new ideas, but as a young, naive 36-year-old, but I'm slowly learning after trying one after another that the answers are really quite old and actually go back even thousands of years. Like, there's really nothing new under the sun when we talk about what it is that we should do. And so I've had to recenter myself on these answers, these old answers, not, not new answers. And I think right now it feels like it's a good time for us as a church to recenter ourselves on some of those old answers. It's a good time for me, and I think it's a good time for all of us. If you were with us back in January, we talked about some of the core things that we are about here at London Christian Fellowship. A lot of the things since January in this world have changed. And so, what do we do now? Well, those core things haven't changed. They're still the same, and they're still the things that we want to do. And so, now feels like a good time to refocus, to recenter again. What is it that we should do now? And so, the first thing that we talked about, if you remember back then, and I didn't put it in these words, but these are the words for today, we do Jesus. Now, I don't know how the English fits with that, and I didn't really look it up, but it fits for me. We do Jesus. In fact, it reminded me of those old commercials, you remember Mountain Dew commercials, anybody remember those, Do the Do? Yeah, um, good commercials, but if it works for that, I think it can work this morning. We do Jesus. I'm not trying to oversimplify or understate the practical things that need to be done and the difficulty of figuring out those things. I'm not trying to understate that. But this morning, I think we need to come together and understand again that there really is one simple thing that we do in centrality, and that is Jesus. I have this feeling that we, as Christians, are a little lost. And I'm speaking in general terms as I look at the church as a whole. But a little lost right now, like a person who's wandering in the woods without a compass, or should I say a GPS, maybe they left their cell phone at home. But wandering in the woods, we are inundated with information. And that keeps increasing 
day after day, more and more information that we have access to that we're being bombarded with. And it's information from all kinds of people, all kinds of areas. And it's a confusing landscape, I think. And I think we can get lost in that. Do we know how to do Jesus? This is one of the questions that I was thinking this week. Do, do I know how to do Jesus? Do I know what that looks like? Do we know what he was about? Well, this time of year, we have the season for campaign signs that are growing, popping up all over. I guess they grow in the fall and come up. I see them popping up all different places. And sometimes you'll see a corner or an area or an empty lot or whatever that's just covered with signs all over the place. Or you might see a car that you're following and the back of it just has bumper stickers all over the back of that car. And in some ways, I think it's a picture of our lives as believers. You know, we might have a Jesus sign um, that we post in that sense, but it feels like sometimes that Jesus sign is lost in a sea of other signs that we have posted and almost can't even be seen with all the other ones that are posted in our lives if we look at our lives like that crowded street corner. And so this morning, I'm proposing that we clear out all of the other signs. Doris and I watch the front of the church here and often a sign will pop up like in front of our church, like it looks very intentionally placed there, and that's like it's a little bit of one of my pet peeves. And I, either her or I, both we we get much joy out of going out there and ripping that sign out and throwing it in the dumpster. Because why do we do that? Well, because we don't want our church to be known about anything else but Jesus, and all the other signs distract from that. And they could be a lot of different signs. I don't know what the signs are in your life that might distract from Jesus. And so I'm proposing that we clear those signs out and that we just have one, and that sign being the name that is above all names, Jesus. We do Jesus Is that radical? Well, it is radical if we take it seriously. It's a radical thing to do. And Jesus really, he asks for it. He he doesn't ask any less of that, and he deserves it. Jesus said in Luke 14, if you're familiar with this passage, he says that unless you hate your father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life, You cannot be his disciple. Now that sounds pretty radical to me. And we know that Jesus isn't, he's not literally saying we should hate them. But in a sense, he's saying, unless you clear out all those other signs of what you're about, you can't be my disciple. The church in Corinth had some signs 
sign that said, I, I do Paul. And another sign, I do Apollos. But Paul tells them, get rid of those signs. Paul and Apollos are nothing. And then he goes on to remind them, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. That's it. There is nothing else to build on. It reminds me of the passage in Matthew 7 that Reuben mentioned a few weeks ago of the wise man who built his house upon the rock and the wind and the waves came and it stood firm. And we know that Jesus is that rock. He is that rock. He told the crowd that you're like this wise man if you come to me, hear my words and do them. No other foundation, no other rock. We do Jesus, just Jesus. We build on nothing else, we stand on nothing else. The passage that Zach read for us from 1 Peter reminds us that Jesus is the cornerstone. And he was quoting in 1 Peter from Isaiah the prophet, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Now, if you know what a cornerstone is, many of us probably are not familiar with that, but it is, as I understand it, the first stone that is laid of a foundation. And all other stones are laid in reference to the cornerstone. It orients the building in a particular direction. And here we see that Jesus is the cornerstone of the church. This isn't about London Christian Fellowship here today. It's not about this place or this building or this property or all the stuff that goes along with LCF. It's not about the pastors or the elders team or small group leaders or children's ministry or youth group. It's not about those things. It's not about our traditions or our heritage, which can be precious to us, but it's not about those things. It's about Jesus. And I think we often forget. Paul tells us in Galatians 2.20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's a powerful, radical statement. I have been crucified, me, myself, with Christ. And if you know the context of this, you know that the Galatian church had gotten confused. Somebody came in and confused them. They had a bunch of signs. Abraham and Isaac and circumcision and Jewish law. And Paul says, no. We have no confidence in ourselves. We have no confidence in our traditions, in our church, our ability to do things well or to be perfect in any way or somehow to attain righteousness by our works. We have no confidence in that. We come to Christ and we give up everything else 
that we could possibly depend on. In fact, we surrender our very selves like Christ did on the cross. And there's no Rob anymore, but only Christ living in me, in each of us. It's a radical and a lengthy process for this to happen. But this is what it means when we say we're following Jesus. This is what it means. This is what it looks like. Paul says in Philippians that he's the epitome of the most zealous, obedient Jew that one could ever find. And yet this is what he says about it. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. No other place. And so I have to personally look at this and say, is that... Is that how I look at it? Everything else I count as rubbish? Can I identify with Paul? Is this my story? Is this your story? Or does it feel too radical? It is radical. It's complete surrender. We do Jesus because we consider everything else as rubbish in comparison to Jesus, the cornerstone, chosen and precious. Is he precious to you? Is he precious to you? Reminds me of a parable that Jesus told about the kingdom of God. In Matthew 13, verse 44, he says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Once again, it feels like a radical move. He doesn't just sell a few things. He gives it all up to have this one thing. And that's what the kingdom of heaven is like. And who is our gateway to the kingdom of heaven? It's Jesus. He's the only way. We do Jesus, just Jesus. We give up everything else that this world has to offer to have the greatest treasure we will ever find. Jesus said, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And that's why we do Jesus. He is the only way. He is the only truth. He is the only life. I'm sure these verses are not uncommon to you. But I hope they remind us of the singularity of the hope that we have in this life and the life to come. It is in one place. Just Jesus. In Matthew 7, 
Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. And then in John 10, he says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. We know that passage is about also where he says, I am the good shepherd. So, have you found your way? Have you found what you're looking for? Do you remember where it is or who it is? Have you forsaken all others, the wide way, and have you chosen the narrow way? I feel like this is a time for all of us to pause, take a moment, and pull out our compass and reorient our lives once again. It's simpler than what we thought. There's only one way, and I would encourage us to stay on it. In the next few weeks, we'll get a little bit more practical about what it looks to follow, what it looks like to follow Jesus. But today, I want us to clear our hearts and minds and remember that we know the way. And it's not like any other way that the world, in the world that we can find or hear. It's a narrow way. There is a lot to be done, for sure. There's a lot of practical things that need to be done. And so I'm not minimizing that at all. But if we don't get this right at the beginning, the rest of it doesn't matter. It just doesn't. If we don't get this part right, The rest of it's worthless. That's what scripture tells us. It's worthless without Jesus. And I have a feeling that for myself and probably all of us, there's parts of what we're doing and what we stand for that need to be cleared out. They're actually worthless. The sign that needs to be ripped out. Do we need to worry about the church? I began with that thought of sometimes I worry. Do we need to worry? Do I need to worry? As a pastor, trying to give leadership, does our elders team need to worry? Well, we know the answer to that, and the answer is absolutely not. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, didn't he? He's building it and nothing is going to stop it. When the foundation is Jesus, it is going to stand for all eternity. All eternity. There is nothing to worry about if Jesus is the foundation. He is the one who builds the church. 
And that's why we do Jesus. Just Jesus. There are many other passages that I'd love to share. But it's time to bring this to a close. I identify with Paul where he says, I do not come to you with eloquent wisdom or great persuasive words. I come in weakness. And even as I was grappling with what to say this week, what to say this morning, I just kept coming back to the fact that I don't know. I don't know what words to use sometimes to express this truth that we can somehow grab a hold of it and comprehend it and understand it. But it's not up to me. The Holy Spirit is here today. He is working among us. Jesus is here and he is building his church. He's building it. These past few months have been quite bewildering. But I see an opportunity for the church. And I hope we don't miss it. And it's not just an opportunity to reach people. I think we have greater opportunity to spread the gospel and to reach people, to share the good news. But I see an opportunity for us as followers of Jesus that we claim. An opportunity to clean house. Vicki was talking about going through the attic. And what a mess, you know. I, I was talking with her this week, and I'm like, yeah, we have the garage to do, and we have the basement to do. We don't have anything in the attic. But... And so Doris has been better at this than me in trying to like, clean things out. And so she'll set stuff aside, and, and then she'll say, would you look at that pile? And I'll go through it. Oh, oh no, we, like, we can't get rid of that. Like, I love this CD. I love this VHS tape. This is a great movie. I can't get rid of that. It's, it can be painful to clean house, but I feel like we need to do that as Christians. There's a lot in our lives that just needs to be cleaned out. It's not about Jesus. It's about our own opinions about what we want, what we want to see happen. And somewhere, it may have started out with Jesus, but somewhere along the way, it got corrupted into something else. And sometimes we don't even know that that happened. And we still stand on it and claim that it's Jesus when it's not. We need to clean house. Revival may be a word that's overused, but I can't think of really a better one. I think... We need some revival in the church. And I know that that revival doesn't start with me looking at others and saying, you need a revival in your life. No, that's not how revivals work. It starts right here with me. This message is for me. We need Jesus, all of us, desperately. And I know it's an old message. And it's one we've heard, some of us, many times, over and over again. But the message doesn't get old. 
We need Jesus. We need to simplify our lives and remove the clutter and regain a singular focus on our Lord and Savior. Jesus has, in some ways, become just one of many things on a wide road of pursuits. And that doesn't work. It just doesn't work. It's not what Jesus called us to. It's not a wide road of pursuits. It's a narrow road of pursuits. And so I want to call us, myself included, to take the narrow way. To take it again. And like I said, this is a process, isn't it? And we find our way, and we lose our way, and we find it again. And God's grace, he pours it out on us. He's always with us. He doesn't leave us, but he's always pulling us back. Always pulling us back. So I'm asking you to respond to Jesus right now, right here. To lay all the other things aside in your life. And like I said, I don't know what they are in your life. I know what they are in mine that tend to distract me and take me off course. And some of those can be really righteous things, but used in the wrong way, they take us away from Jesus. I'm confident that Jesus is telling you what they are this morning. And so I'm encouraging you to lay those aside. All of your pursuits, all of your plans, all of the other things that you stand for. Strip it all aside until until it's just Jesus. We're going to close with a song, and I want to invite the worship team to come forward to lead us. It's a song I want us to sing, to be able to sing with, with honesty. It talks about Jesus being the center of it all. And so, I hope you can sing it with integrity. And you might want to just take an opportunity to just talk to God. And make that be so in your own life. Before we sing that, I want to share one last passage with you from Colossians chapter 1. Listen closely. Starting with verse 15. This is talking about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross.